I'm Stuart Preston, and this is the Consciousness Podcast, where each week I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. This week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Michael Nam, and the topic was terminal lucidity, a term he coined. Terminal lucidity has implications in end-of-life experience, near-death experience, and provides insight into human consciousness. Dr. Nam is a biologist and has also studied zoology, botanics, genetics, and paleontology. So please enjoy this edition of the Consciousness Podcast with Dr. Michael Nam. Oh, and listen past the end for a far-out discussion on psychedelics and terminal lucidity. So, what, uh, so give, tell us a little bit about terminal lucidity and, and why you're so uh, passionate about it. Actually, I happened to uh, stumble across uh, cases of terminal lucidity more or less by chance in studying all kinds of literature on consciousness and on death-related phenomena, and also old literature concerning these issues from the 19th century. And as I uh, did quite some uh, studying into near-death experiences, this is how it happened to me, because it is, like many other death-related experiences, something that happens close to death. And Mm -hmm. as I... um, studied all that stuff or stumbled across these cases, I noted that so far there seems not to be um, a collection of cases or, or a term for it or, yeah, um, or uh, an awareness that there is something special that might be worth pointing to explicitly. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, still, this is how my collection grew and how my concern with this grew. And I started to differentiate between different types of terminal lucidity and different diseases, types of diseases, and so on. Okay. And, and yeah, so maybe, what, what, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yes, maybe for those who don't know what I am uh, particular, uh, particularly referring to, I might give some examples. Mm-hmm. Because, Please. yeah. So terminal lucidity uh, refers to an emergence or a return of mental clarity or even of memory shortly before death in patients who had been dull or in a confused state of mind before dying. So sometimes this is experienced as being rather rather unusual. And the most interesting cases pertain to patients that, who suffered from dementia or neurologic and sometimes also psychiatric diseases. For example, the Alzheimer disease. Um, It may be the case that a a patient suffers from the terminal stage of Alzheimer's disease, is non-responsive, laying in her or his bed for weeks, months, perhaps even years, not being able to recognize anybody, not being actually uh, able to talk about um, her or himself. And all of a sudden, this person might become lucid, perhaps even sit up in uh, the bed and talk about um, the yeah, past life again, seemingly remembering again who she or he was, asking questions about relatives, uh, inquiring about the current situation or talking about their own concerns, fear of death, and so on. And then this person may just sink back into the bed and die within, in extreme cases, let's say minutes or even hours or one or two days. Mm-hmm. So these are the most dramatic cases which illustrate uh, terminal lucidity in patients suffering from dementia diseases that even go uh, hand in hand with the destruction of the brain structure, which makes it so peculiar. Yeah, and I've got some questions about that coming up, you know, later, because that, that does make it pretty peculiar. Um, yeah. I don't know if you have, if you talk to the family and doctors, but I mean, that I would say that moment of lucidity must be pretty shocking to a family, especially if they're not warned about it, to have somebody who has no faculties at all to to even sit up and use muscles and talk and have memories. I mean, that must be, you know, a pretty shocking moment. Is that, have you talked to anybody who's, you know, been through that or is that just kind of an assumption I can make that it must be a, you know, maybe a wonderful and also a a pretty painful experience all at the same time for the, the family and friends around them? Yes, it depends. Some people experience it as very comforting, spiritually yeah, relieving uh, or yeah, easing. Mm-hmm. But for some people, it can, in fact, be quite frightening. So I know of one particular case in which uh, 
an Alzheimer uh, patient, an uh, old woman in her 80s, reacted just in the case I have previously uh, described. So the, the two daughters of her were present. They were grown-ups and they were very concerned. and didn't know uh, what happened and how to relate to this situation. And there was even one um, a granddaughter present and she just ran out of the room because it was too scary for her because she had known her grandmother uh, laying in bed for months or years so this mm -hmm. really was very frightening and they all didn't know uh, what happened and how to behave best yeah so i bet if you're not ready for it, it must be a shock yeah yeah this can definitely yeah. happen yeah and okay. i think it's also one reason why I aim at uh, highlighting uh, these uh, cases of terminal lucidity to make people aware of them, to show that this can happen, and so that people might be able to um, take the opportunity to optimally deal or handle these very precious last moments with their relatives. Yeah. Yeah, and I know it seems like, and I, and I mentioned this to you before, but in uh, hospice, I've had a couple of people go through hospice, and the hospice nurses have even told us, they said, you know, just be warned, there may be, and they, they didn't use the term terminal lucidity. Um, they may have said lucidity or clarity, or, or they may wake up for a minute, but they kind of warned us that, you know, something like this might happen. So is, is this, uh, I know the cases that you presented that I read through, are pretty extreme, you know, like you mentioned from meningitis and brain tumors and some serious, you know, damage to the brain. But in a normal patient who's going through hospice and is in a, you know, a sedative state, is it, is this more common than not for them to have a, a moment of terminal lucidity? Well, I think it's still something that doesn't happen too often. It's it's not regular for sure, it's but it regular. can it, it it does happen regularly. Or, or, yeah, but it's it's not the case that in, in each patient, of course. And the more dramatic examples, which I focused my studies on, like cases mm -hmm. of tumors, um, Alzheimer's disease, strokes, and these um, types of disease, it's maybe even rarer. But so far, there are no statistics on that. But, but still it does happen, and because it is such an extraordinary uh, experience, nurses know about it and tell people about it, because sometimes people tend to think, oh, now my mom or whoever is getting better, she will be yeah. healthy again soon. And then quite the contrary happens, within a very short time, patients dies. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why nurses tend to yeah, alert yeah. people about the possibility that these uh, things might happen. Yeah, just prepare them for not, not to be too optimistic or expect miracles. Yes, yes. Yeah. So it must be, it must be difficult then to study this. You know, it's, uh, and it kind of reminds me, you know, about near-death experiences and my conversation with Dr. Kelly. And, you know, it's... Uh, it, it's a difficult thing to study when it, it's almost um, case studies and, you know, taking people's word for it and observations. It's not something you can repeat or, or make happen. So, and I guess I was hoping with my previous question that it was common enough that there might be something we could do, but I guess, I guess studying this is pretty difficult, isn't it? Yes, it is very difficult um, already because the, the, the time that somebody dies is a very special and intimate time or moments. And you wouldn't want to enter with a scientific equipment uh, into that right. um, moments too invasively and yeah, or even put electrodes on the heads of these people or film them or whatever. So I think this is not very appropriate from an ethical perspective. And I also don't think that um, ethical commissions would be very uh, supportive of such kind of studies. So what you can do and what we did or other research groups did is asking nurses about their experiences, asking um, family members who um, experienced such um, events to form a more or a clearer idea about the things that can happen. And I think already by this approach, you can 
collect very many interesting data on this phenomenon, phenomenon and point to it and make it more known. And another thing that could be done is develop kind of a terminal lucidity scale to even describe it more precisely or to distinguish it from related or phenomena and so on. Like there exist uh, scales by which you can, yeah. uh, or by which people address the performance of dying patients in, in their motor and mental skills. There, is, there are scales that by which um, people assess the performance of dementia patients. And there is also the near-death experience scale developed by Bruce Grayson. So these are things that you can do, but usually it takes nurses and doctors to use these um, tools to assess the phenomenon in more, more closely. But I think there's not much that you can do with the patients themselves. Yeah. Yeah, but that is interesting yeah. to have a, a scale, you know, as, as part of a, almost a, a post-mortem that they probably do anyway, that they could, they could throw that in there and then you could start to collect some real good data across the world for that. That's, yes. that's, I like that. Yeah. Um, you know, again, we're talking about some of these extreme cases that you've mentioned. Is there any kind of a correlation between the affected areas of the brain? You know, you think about Alzheimer's and the, the temporal lobe or people with brain tumors. Um, you know, I think about the, the boy who has an infection growing in his brain for most of his young life who died as a, as a teenager. You know, is there any kind of a correlation between uh, affected areas of the brain and the neuronal damage to the brain and this experience of this terminal lucidity? Well, so far, I don't think so. First of all, what we have is not in enough data or not enough case reports that would allow for um, detecting such a correlations uh, because you would have to know the precise conditions of the brains, which is mm -hmm. only the case in very few cases, like that people performed an autopsy or something like this. Right. So from that point, it's very difficult. Um, but on uh, on a, from a second perspective, I did not find any uh, hints that would point to such a correlation. And it rather seems that terminal lucidity is something very similar independently of the uh, precise type of the brain damage. So if you take a, a dementia patient like somebody with Alzheimer's disease or a tumor patient, a stroke patient, or yeah, meningitis. These are very different diseases that affect the brain in very different ways, but still destroy parts of it to a considerable degrees. And the terminal lucidity experience can be very, very similar so that you cannot tell from the experience of about what kind of uh, neurolo neurological disorder this patient, patient might have had. So I don't think so. Um, and even if you look at persons with um, fully developed brains that, that die, who die, again here, they have very similar experiences. Um, for example, terminal lucidity goes very often hand-in-hand hand with deathbed visions. People see spiritual beings, people see deceased relatives or friends who seem to come and pick the dying uh, uh, patients up, taking them to the realm beyond or whatever. And this is mm -hmm. almost indistinguishable from deathbed visions experienced by people who die with a healthy brain. So well, from the data, that, or the case collections known to me, I would rather infer that terminal lucidity is independent of the conditions of the brain or the different parts of the brain, that there is no correlation between those two levels. Yeah. So where do you think that this, this clarity originates from? And maybe it's getting into the mind-brain problem, but, you know, if, if people with healthy brains, people with damages to different areas of the brain, severe damage, all experience this. What are your thoughts on where this, where this phenomenon originates? 
Yeah, <laughs> difficult question. But, yeah, maybe uh, impossible. Maybe it's not fair for me to even ask it. But it's, no, no, it's something that. Yes, I think the the phenomena uh, they uh, they require asking these questions and pondering about them. But it's difficult to find answers. But um, in my opinion, what these data tell me, and not only terminal lucidity, but all the other death-related phenomena like near-death experiences, deathbed visions, and there are other kinds of phenomena, or even the classical areas of psychical research, they all point to uh, the, you know, the, let's say, let's call it the fact that the world we perceive around us, the material world, the fourth, four-dimensional time-space continuum, is not everything mm -hmm. there is to reality. It seems right. very much that there is a kind of a background reality that possesses some kind of a psychic or mental properties and or maybe even some consciousness related properties. And what we experience here is something like uh, the tip of the iceberg. And so if we assume that consciousness can at least to some extent exist independently of the brain, then this consciousness in my opinion, is very likely to originate in that kind of a background reality and will yeah, manifest itself usually through the organism and through brains, but perhaps not always. And I think the origin most likely does not lie inside the body, but somewhere behind the right. body. Yeah, because yeah, you, you mentioned that the brain... You know, this is a quote. I don't know if you wrote it or if it's something you said, but the brain functions as a kind of filter or transmitter organ. And so that's what you're getting at right now is you think that there's a... So what, what is your idea, your theory? I mean, you mentioned that there's a background consciousness or something else there. And so what is, you know, how do you look at... Um, how is, you know, looking at terminal lucidity and all, all your studies affected your idea of the nature of mind and consciousness and the fact that the brain might be this, this portal to, to consciousness or this filter. So how, how do you put that together? Or what's your hypothesis or idea on that? Yes. Well, it's um, similar to uh, what I just um, uh, talked about. This right. idea that the brain is a filter or a transmitter is in fact very old. It dates back to many centuries and it was actually rather prominent in romantic times and German romantic authors wrote about it. And then again, several psychical researchers put this idea forward. And I think it makes some sense because um, um, what also the, the romantic authors and these people in, when they looked at their patients in states of somnambulism or in trance or whatever, they seem to have access to a very large and expanded knowledge that was, or, or perceptions that were greater than what the people would usually uh, perceive or mm -hmm. be able to recognize. And so they came up with this model that um, the, the brain, or actually already the senses, they might function as a filter or a, a, yeah, a reduction valve that allows the persons to form a more coherent um, worldview that is adapted to the, their surroundings and mainly being responsible perhaps for their motor skills and so on. And so I think that makes a lot of sense, but of course it's very difficult to to concretely or directly form hypothesis about how does yeah. that really work. And so far, as I know, there is very, uh, not many really reliable or detailed theories are around. For me, it's something that the data, the available data, they, they tell us. It's maybe or most likely like this. It's more likely than assuming that the brain produces consciousness. So I think the filter hypothesis fits better to the large, also anomalistic data available, but still we don't really have a, a proper theory that might account for it. There are some physi physicists 
which developed models or frameworks in which we could um, which we could use here perhaps but i don't know if we will ever understand this in the full extent if 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 our mind can fully explain itself i'm not sure if this can ever happen maybe it has to do with some kind of entanglement correlations that the brain and the mind are somehow entangled and and function mm. more in this way and not in a exclusively causal manner i don't know how this data reduction or whatever or perception uh, or filter works but it's still the, the most suitable general framework which i uh, think explains the data that we have yeah yeah it makes it reminds me of uh um aldous huxley and his his doors of perception where he mentions his experience with mescaline and feeling like his brain was a filter and that the mescaline helps like almost open up that filter to the, you know, the, the greater consciousness, the cosmic consciousness or, or whatever it is. It was a pretty, uh, whether it was accurate or not, or, you know, whatever he's describing, but you're kind of reminding me of that, mm. that kind of a notion. Yes. Um, you mentioned, you, so you mentioned the motor skills, which I is something that, you know, reading about some of these uh, cases, like the 90 year old, 91 year old stroke victim and some of the people that they seem incapable of motor function, you know, so their, their motor neurons, like their nervous system is, is incapable of movement, you know, in some of these cases. And yet during this time of terminal lucidity, they, they do move, you know, like you said, they'll sit up, you know, or, or maybe even their vocal cords weren't working and then they talk or whatever it is. It seems, you know, and that's, to me, that seems uh, like an amazing phenomenon that that something where a person's brain and body could not move their muscles, suddenly that's happening. And that's, I don't know if you have an explanation for that or just that's something that, you know, you observe, but, you know, I, maybe just like you, I wonder how it's possible that somebody in that state, that not only their mind could overcome this, but now they're, they're moving parts of their body that they hadn't moved for quite a long period of time. I mean, is that, what are your ideas or thoughts on that? How is that, how is that possible? Yes. Well, specifically uh, regarding this case you mentioned about the 91-year-old stroke victim. Mm -hmm. So this is the most dramatic case uh, that I came across in my collection. And before subscribing that these cases or, or that it happened like it is described, I would actually like to collect more cases that would um, support the, the supposed genuineness of this case. So right. I don't know if this is really a reliable account. I think mm. and more, more work needs to be done to establish the reality of these dramatic cases. I, I think that's my opinion. But personally, I would not be surprised if these cases do happen. And if they are real, well, it opens up the room for speculations, of course. And um, in, in my case, I, I was reminded of other uh, yeah, strange object movements studied again in the realm of psychical research and which are called telekinesis or psychokinesis. Mm -hmm. For example, um, it is long known that um, people in a very excited or stressed emotional state can apparently have an effect on physical objects of whatever kind. And specifically in the context of dying, just think about of uh, stops, uh, stopping clocks or pictures falling down from the walls and other electric anomalies, lights turning on and off. And these are phenomena right. that are reported rather commonly in the literature about unusual death-related experiences. And then again, yeah. we have all the other seemingly explicable um, psychophysiological influences, starting from placebo effects, ranging up to stigmata or even voodoo death, like auto-suggestively induced dying and all these things where the mind seems to exert a very strong influence on its own body matter. And I think, yeah, 
yeah. you know, just I mentioned that the most dramatic case maybe relates to uh, the sudden whitening of hair in uh, situations of uh, emotional distress or trauma. And people typically think, well, that cannot really happen because hair is dead matter, you know, it has no no physiology, physiology in, in it anymore. So it certainly cannot alter its color because it's dead matter. So right. from the literature study, focusing on the medical literature of the last 200 years in different languages. And I came up with about more than 200 cases described by physicians who uh, apparently report or who reported such an unusual unusually rapid decoloration of hair and over 40 mm. physicians witnessed it in person. So I think we have very strong evidence that the mind can affect matter or even its own body matter. And so I think maybe that happens again in cases of terminal lucidity when people are very much affected by strong emotions, maybe happy emotions, in the case of the old woman just mentioned, she seemed to recognize her deceased husband who was coming to pick her up. So this might create an emotion strong enough to move the body, even though it's organic um, parts or the nerves, the brain would usually not allow it or didn't allow it before. So for me, these cases seem to border on telekinetic or psychokinetic phenomena as um, or and these other very strange psychophysiological influences on one's own body. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me uh, think, you know, you mentioned the, the um, connection between the, the brain and the consciousness, you know, the entanglement. And I wonder if that, and I don't know if, if I'm just throwing this out there, I don't even know if I'm asking a question, but I wonder if that entanglement goes beyond just the brain, you know, if it actually goes to, your whole nervous system, your neurons, your motor neurons. Mm. If there's something there, then that's why things are able to actually happen. And maybe that's, maybe these movements are coming from, coming from that greater consciousness. I don't know. It just, that's the thought that occurred to me based on what, what you shared earlier. So. Yes, that's certainly the case. And I think this entanglement processes do definitely relate to what I call psychokinesis, for example. There are mm -hmm. even theories in which entanglement processes are employed in explanatory models for psychokinetic phenomena and so on. So that's definitely uh, something I would also subscribe to, yeah. Yeah, okay, interesting. Um, now, you mentioned NDE, near-death experiences, earlier, and I know that you've um, collaborated with, you know, I, I guess the expert of NDE, maybe Dr. Grayson. And, um, and there seems to be a, a timing, you know, timing issue that the terminal lucidity happens before that quote moment of death. Um, and maybe also near death doesn't quite cross that, that timeline, but how, how do you see um, terminal lucidity tying into that near death experience? Yes, um, I do think there is a, a relation between those two phenomena. And I think that this is made even more likely, or, or if you call the, the link between those, uh, the best link between those two types of phenomena are deathbed visions. Because terminal lucidity, uh, basically you, you can have two kinds of them. In one kind, the people are just regaining their memories or maybe their, their personality traits and talking about mm -hmm. very down-to-earth matters, about inquiring about family members and so on and so on. But very often, you find terminal lucidity cases that have these spiritual components I mentioned before. Like they, they sit up in their bed and seem to recognize deceased family members or spiritual beings or, or whatever. Sure. And actually display very typical deathbed visions. And right. this again ties very closely into uh, the, the subject of near-death experiences because also persons who experience near-death experiences, they report seeing or meeting deceased relatives, spiritual beings. They also might report uh, perceiving heavenly music or bright lights. All this is reported from deathbed visions. And they also, of course, report, or often report, 
uh, a very intense mental clarity or lucidity they never experienced before. So you see that all these elements present in near-death experiences can again be found in deathbed visions to some extent. And deathbed visions in return are often a very profound component of terminal lucidity. So that highlights very nicely that all these death-related phenomena are closely tied and linked to each other. And now if, if you want to come up with explanatory models for, let's say, near-death experiences or terminal lucidity, I think it is very, very important to take all the other phenomena into account as well. So we should not treat terminal lucidity or near-death experiences as a singular phenomenon, an oddity that occurs close to death and has nothing to do with all the other um, mm -hmm. phenomena. And I think, yeah, that's the way we must approach uh, these so-called end-of-life um, experiences, which, again, yeah. if we take them all into account and look at all these elements and, and their characteristics, this will only enable us to find the most suitable explanatory models for them. Right. Yeah, so this is that makes, why that I makes think, sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so what then is, uh, your, what's your opinion of survival of the mind or consciousness after death? I think I'm starting to get a clear picture of, of where you might be on this, but I'm curious to know, you know, the terminal lucidity and near-death experiences and all these phenomena that you said, you know, we have to look at as a whole to really understand that, you know, this moment. What, how do you view survival of consciousness after death? Yes, uh, well, so my, per, my opinion is not entirely fixed, my opinion about survival, but I think judging on the data that we have and all the reports that we have, that something of ourself or of our personality will continue to exist after the brain ceases to function. So I'm prepared to, to experience this when my brain will uh, one day cease to function. Right. Uh, and if the, when the neurons will stop firing. But about the details of this um, assumed survival, I really don't have any very fixed ideas so, uh, about how this survival might look like or in how far it is possibly influenced by personal or cultural concepts, beliefs, or maybe even by the circumstance of dying, about how long it will persist and in which way. I can only speculate on these more detailed aspects, but I think that what the data tell us is that our consciousness is not exclusively created by firing neurons and brain chemistry right. and can exist also, you know, at least for some time, uh, independently of it. And so I expect that survival will occur or can occur. But as mentioned about the, the precise details, I'm, I'm open to whatever happens. Right. Yeah? Certainly curious about it. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Um, there's, it seems like there's definitely a, a time element, you know, and the, with the terminal lucidity. You know, we, we talked, uh, you know, from a couple of weeks to a couple of minutes before death, and then death occurs within a couple of minutes, to hours to a day after. And, and I may be stepping out on a, on a limb here, but because, you know, I wonder what, what is time, to a dying mind, you know what I mean. What what is time to consciousness? Does time even exist in in consciousness and in, in the realm of a of a conscious consciousness in general? So I wonder. Then you know we, you have all these cases, and the most interesting ones, I guess, are the ones of people that have the severe damage to their brain where they they experience the terminal lucidity. But I wonder if somebody and you have mentioned that a normal healthy mind also goes through this. But I wonder if somebody who dies a, a sudden death, you know, from an accident or a heart attack or aneurysm or something like that, might also have his or her own, and it's probably not observable, so maybe we can't even answer this, but I wonder what your, you know, hypothesis might be on this. If, if a normal, healthy person who died suddenly 
might also experience terminal lucidity, you know, a moment of clarity, but in a time span that, you know, we can't observe, but maybe within their own consciousness, they have the same kind of experience as somebody who wakes up from, you know, Alzheimer's. What Have you thought about that or what do you think about, you know, that kind of a thing? Is that something that could happen to the sudden death of a normal, healthy mind? Yes. Well, I think you're quite right that we really don't know what time is and how it really relates to the background reality of existence. Um, but um, I think that as long as we as a person exist in this four-dimensional space-time continuum, we have to follow the flow of time pretty much. Right. And even when uh, our body dies or comes into a situation where it is about to die. So if somebody dies very quickly or suddenly, like uh, in an accident, I would assume that the, the mental clarity will only manifest at a time when this person seems already unconscious or dead to the bystanders. So, and I'd expect that such a person is likely to go through the stages described by near-death experiencers. Right. So if, if we regard these as typical stages of a dying process, then I would expect that the clarity also or, or will, will only uh, be experienced by these persons when their body seems already to be uh, yeah, dead yeah, or, or, flows, or at least under that near-death experience. Yeah. yeah. So I would not expect the, these people to suddenly stand up, sit up, and uh, describe such a, a moment of clarity, although I would not, not exclude it. But I'd say the more sudden death comes, the more likely it is that the uh, mental clarity will only manifest at a later stage to this consciousness. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Mm. So looking to the future, you know, with your, your study of terminal lucidity, you know, where, where do you see it taking you in the future? What, what are some of the long-term possibilities that you see from this? Well, again, it's a good question because I'm not a physician. So right. um, I, Basically, I did this, uh, this, my studies into near-death phenomena and also terminal lucidity in my spare time. Uh, I am a biologist, so I, I know a bit about organisms mm -hmm. and human beings, but I'm not in a position to really perform studies or to work in a hospital or to, to work with physicians at the moment. So this is also why I uh, mainly draw uh, reports from the literature or I collected case reports that people sent to me because they knew I'm interested in these cases. So right. what I hope that will happen is that other researchers who have the opportunities and also the, the possibilities to work in hospitals will take up this issue and become motivated to study it in more detail. In the first place, this would mean that, that they perform uh, surveys in hospitals, hospices, mm -hmm. palliative uh, stations, and so on. And in fact, this has already happened to a small degree. Uh, I was um, involved in uh, initiating a study in a Swiss um, hospital where the nurses were questioned uh, regarding their experiences with unusual end-of-life um, experiences also as including terminal lucidity, and they did report they all knew about it, to a certain extent mm -hmm. at least. Then also Alexander Batiani from uh, a university in Vienna, he uh, performed what he called a European terminal lucidity study. He sent out questionnaires, I think several thousands, if I'm not mistaken, to nurses, doctors, and so on, and collected reports about terminal lucidity mainly concerning dementia patients. And he... Uh, uh, got very many interesting reports in return. And so hmm. I hope that um, my studies will stimulate others to perform more research in the clinical or medical setting 
and as mentioned earlier, one uh, important aspect that I'd like to promote or to suggest is developing a terminal lucidity scale so that people can better tell what is a terminal lucidity experience or, it is, or what is perhaps just a, a small lightening up of a, an otherwise dull patient or to, to distinguish between different types of terminal lucidity a bit better or something like this, you know. This is what I would suggest to other researchers, but I don't know about, but I expect that my personal involvement in uh, terminal lucidity research will uh, be rather limited in, in future. Well, it sounds like it could be quite a catalyst because I know that nurses experience, observe, I should say, these phenomena, and to them it's almost... Uh, it's a given. It's what happens. So many of us question things and skeptics and people studying things, but the people who actually deal with the, the dying people, to them, it seems to be just kind of a given. So I think if if you're a catalyst to create this scale, the terminal lucidity scale, and, and we get that out there and make it happen, I think that uh, there'd be a huge outcome from that and really trying to understand the whole end of physical life you know, in, in consciousness, I think that could be, you know, obviously bring us a huge benefit. So hopefully it's a, it's a catalyst for that. Mm. That'd be pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, you know, before we, before we wrap it up, is there, is there anything else that you'd like to share? Anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to discuss? Mm. Well, maybe one thing and that ties in with what you've just said. I'd, I'd like to repeat that many nurses, many doctors, they know about all kinds of unusual end-of-life experiences, but so mm -hmm. far it seems that they didn't really bother about documenting them well. And so this is what my work on terminal acidity was all about, and I think it also is you can you, uh, it also relates one to one to all other. Uh, end-of-life experiences that happen in hospitals and or in hospices. I think people should put more weight on really documenting these things in a reliable manner to make it accessible also to people who are typically not so much involved or personally involved in caring for these um, patients. Right. Or, um, very specifically, perhaps also caring about people with mental disabilities because in my collection, I have very few cases in which people with mental disabilities who were born like that also mm -hmm. experienced uh, in, yeah, terminal wow. events. There's one paper I published with Bruce Grayson about the case of Käthe in the journal Omega. But uh, I think nobody really knows how, how people with mental disabilities die. And maybe one could discover very intriguing and yeah, moving and yeah, also yeah. Yeah, purely interesting things from a scientific perspective that might teach us a lot about uh, what our human mind really is and what happens, what goes on behind the scenes of mentally disabled or, or dementia patients and all these things. I think there are many um, end-of-life phenomena in uh, that are known, but what makes terminal lucidity so special is that it points to the fact that even in, in people who are seemingly deranged or dement or uh, you know, psychiatrically disordered, there seems to mm -hmm. be that the essence of these, those people still remains intact, even if they are lying around in a non-responsive state. And this is something that, to my knowledge, uh, is only... Uh, yeah, made likely by study terminal lucidity. And yes, so I think it would be very important to document all these anomalies that happen in the medical, in the clinical setting. And, and there's actually another paper that I published with uh, Bruce Grayson and also with David Rousseau about uh, discrepancies between um, cerebral structures of brains and cognitive functioning of the respective persons in which we collected cases 
of, let's say, more or less uh, misdeveloped brains in which the person still seemed to be mentally fully present or at least in, to, to an agree or to a degree that you would not expect if you would simply look at their brains. And so right. in general, I think that really documenting anomalies in, in the medical and clinical setting could teach us very much about uh, brain functioning, human nature, consciousness, memory processing, all these things, which yeah, I think that, uh, there's a great treasure that we could unearth by specifically looking into such anomalies. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. And that would be fascinating. There's so much here that comes out of you, your studies and your observations um, in this that, like you said, could really unearth a treasure. So that's, yeah. that's a great way to look at that. Well, Michael, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. And uh, they, uh, just thank you for your time. It was, it was an amazing topic and, and a lot for all of us to think about. Yes, thanks to you, Stuart. Thank you very much for the invitation and the opportunity to speak about uh, my research interests on your podcast. What a pleasure for me. Wonderful. Well, thank you. That concludes another edition of the Consciousness Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash the Consciousness Podcast at our Twitter handle at ConchCast. And don't forget to subscribe to our feed at theconsciousnesspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. But wait, there's more. Hang on for my far out question. I, if you have time for one more question, I didn't want to throw this in there because I didn't give it to you up front. But and I don't know how you feel about this and with your biology background, it makes it also interesting. But I, I attended a webinar with uh, Robin, Robin Carhart Harris. Are you familiar with him and his work? No. He... He's uh, like the preeminent person right now with uh, psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And what he did is, um, and I think he's in England, what he did is a, a bunch of fMRI analyses of brains on, you know, a, a normal brain, a brain on a placebo, and brains on LSD, psilocybin, and DMT, three psychedelic, you know, compounds. Mm -hmm. And he showed an interesting um, photo you know, it was a graphic um, and not of the MRI, but of a network and shows how the human brain begins and, in, in, you know, when it, in, in its infancy and the brain is all connected like a giant network. So no, almost no matter what a young mind is thinking or observing, the entire brain seems to get in on it. But as we mature, the brain starts to specialize. And so observing something might just take one little piece of the brain and that one little part of the brain handles that. And it's not all networked together. But then when somebody takes and psilocybin was probably the, the biggest example of this. So when, when the brain is under the influence of psilocybin, it goes back to this giant network where mm -hmm. the whole brain starts to network together. Mm -hmm. And I think from your perspective and what we we're talking about, consciousness is it's a background consciousness it's greater than the physical brain so i don't know if this is really relevant anymore but after writing your questions and, and reading some of your research and then seeing this webinar i thought to myself maybe there's something in the brain maybe the brain is releasing its own chemical because um, there are theories that there's dmt within your pineal gland mm -hmm. so maybe the brain is releasing its own chemical that allows the brain to once again work as a giant network and is able to overcome, you know, maybe number one, overcome some of these physical damages that are, have been done to the brain, and two, helps to generate this this moment of clarity mm -hmm. in the brain. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but you know, listening to you and reading your information, and then seeing um, Robin talking about this stuff, it kind of made me wonder if there's not something like that going on. But I think that's a little too physicalist you know, for your position here about the background consciousness, but I didn't know well, if you... I wouldn't, know, not necessarily, because I still think that uh, mental processes are as, as closely as possible mirrored by uh, physiological processes in the brain. So I'd actually expect if somebody 
lives through uh, um, a terminal lucidity experience and the brain is not yet entirely destroyed. Like, as mentioned, uh, terminal lucidity experiences do also happen to people with uh, normal brains. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd expect that this will be mirrored by the physiology of the brain. So I can well him. So th basically that makes sense. So if the brain still is intact, why should it not react like this and spread right. activities all through the areas that are still intact and would then uh, result or correlate with the respective mental experience of lucidity? I don't think that uh, contradicts it or, or, or is an argument against it. Okay. Actually, you might have heard about several studies that, uh, in, in which dying pa patients were um, studied using electrodes on their head. No, but they were I'm not sure. Comatose patients, they were non-responsive. Mm -hmm. And so they were about to die and uh, people decided that they should uh, disconnect them from the machines that kept them right. alive. And, but they made these patients the subject of studies and measured the electrode activities on their brains. They also did it on rats. And so at a certain point, uh, just before, so the, the brain activity then decreased and decreased and decreased, and all of a sudden there came a huge peak of activity. Right, yes, I am familiar with that. Okay, and then it dropped down again, and then um, the patient died. And people speculate whether these um, spikes are related to near-death experiences or terminal lucidity or whatever. Well, I doubt right. that they are related to near-death experiences, but for several reasons, because they are much too complex to be reduced to a certain spike of electronic activity in the brain. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe it, it creates some kind of mental experience that is different from usual mental experiences. I would not be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, thank you for uh, obliging me on that. That one last question.